Everybody, you are listening to the Vocal Advancement Podcast, and I am your host, Tom, and I'm joined by the lovely Heather today. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> which language are we in today? <laughs> it's all Greek to me. Uh. <laughs> I'm the best. I'm, I'm running yeah. out of ideas. We need our listeners to give me some suggestions. Of, uh, I keep looking up languages, and their version of hello is hello. <laughs> Hello. I'm like, well, I can't do that. I've done that. I need, I need new ways of saying hello. So if you've got suggestions yeah. out there, send them in. Yeah, because there's a whole host that it wouldn't even attempt to try and tell you how to say it. It's just like, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what's new with you this week, Tom? Well, I am uh, just fresh from visiting our conference venue for uh, EvoCon oh, 2024. Oh, indeed. That is super right, exciting. Uh, I went last week to be wined and dined by Edinburgh University, which was lovely. I love it. You've I just know. given away where you went. Uh, but we'll have told everybody by then, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> he was keeping it all hush-hush on Instagram. So, look, look at these pictures. Where do you think I am? I know. Somebody, <laughs> I got like, I must have had about six comments. Like, are you in Austria? I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was fun. It was a fun game to play with people. But yes, yeah, it was nice. It's such a, a lovely venue. It's, um, I was telling our the rest of our colleagues eh, that it's a nice mix between castle and conference venue. So I think people it are going lovely. to really like it. Mm. Since we haven't had a conference in person for a billion oh, gazillion years because of stupid ever. COVID. <laughs> no. It is long awaited, and I'm sure our teachers are going to be extremely excited to uh, come to that. Yeah, I'm uh, going to speak to the last time you were in Edinburgh. I don't know if you remember, we were on the Royal Mile, and there was an Irish bar across from the hotel that we were in. And uh, a group of our teachers went over on, uh, I think it was the Thursday, the Wednesday or the Thursday night, and there was a singer on, and they basically took over from this poor guy <laughs> who was, you know, doing his Wednesday night gig for his 200 quid and a couple of pints, and they came in and took over, gave him voice lessons, sang with them, duetted with them, harmonized with them, and basically, so I might want to put them in warning. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was going to say, that's not the first time that's happened either, because I remember a conference <laughs> in California where there was a singer in the, the terrace outside. And yeah, very quickly, the teachers just turned it into their own personal karaoke session. <laughs> I know. And I did talk to them about that, to the conference organizers, like, you know, we need a space for karaoke. It needs to be pretty well soundproofed. <laughs> and, you know... You need to not be worrying about the noise because it gets a bit, you know, a bit yeah, wild. I know. <laughs> and then well, somebody gets up. We put that many voice teachers together in one room. It's going to get a little bit wild, surely. I know. I do remember the I can't remember what hotel we were in, but I remember the staff coming in at one point. Oh, I think it was Las Vegas, actually. The staff coming in just to listen to everybody sing. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I have to go after that. <laughs> <laughs> I see. My mantra is, if in doubt, pull out a comedy number and it's all good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's it. Oh, that is super exciting. So it is exciting times. And um, yeah, I can't wait. And it's nice to host it in your kind of home city, you know, having people come and see where you live and all mm -hmm. that stuff. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited to have folk back in Scotland again. Fabulous. I think and people it's gonna will be, be excited June. to come back. Yeah. 
And it'll be in June, so we might even get some sunshine, perhaps. Ooh, you never know. Might only get three seasons in the week, and supposed to all four. That'd <laughs> <laughs> uh, be good. So, yeah. today's oh, episode... Yes. We do have a guest, don't we? Well, we have the lovely Heidi Moss, who is a a delight to chat with. She's such a lovely, lovely person. And she has lots of things to say about many things. Well, Heidi has done an awful lot of, you know, kind of focused research and and on mostly kind of the neuroscience behind um, singing and other things as well that Mm. featured in her life um and she has just a very unique journey that has led her to be able to kind of be the expert on that field based on you know the training that she's had in other areas um and work that she's done alongside singing um so yeah we should probably listen to what she has to say about that shouldn't we yeah yeah Let's, let's go straight to it Heidi, welcome. It Thank is you. lovely to have you here and to get to chat to you and get to know you a little bit better. You've recently, um, you know, done a class for us, which was fascinating as ever. Um, and really, we just wanted to get to know you a little bit more. So, um, yeah. first things first, <laughs> tell us all about why singing? How did you get into singing? Oh. At what age did you get into singing? You know, how did this happen? Because I know that singing isn't your only thing. Yes. Oh, so- gosh, you're starting with like the biggest, hardest question, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I like to say, you know, we all started singers. So I would argue that it's a biological imperative. But I was definitely the youngest of six as a black sheep who would just sing and dance around the house like a crazy person. Um, And, you know, my very um, academic family was like, who is that? But uh, (laughs) I took, you know, piano lessons. I loved music. Um, And so I was always doing that, I think, as, as many of us do. And I started as a pianist and I had an old lady in town who sung at the Met in the 1920s and and I would play for her and she had this Victrola and would play old opera recordings. And I felt it's more fun to sort of stand in front of the piano and and make noise than to sit behind it. And so that's sort of how it started. And sadly, I lost all my piano chops, but that's how it started. But again, the biology and science, because that was my family, was always in the background. But I got a double degree at Oberlin, biology and music, which is a conservatory here. Uh, Richard Miller was there. Oops, I had a cat jump on a piano, so sorry about that. <laughs> well, that always adds a little jazz hands yeah. to the mix. Yeah, so Oberlin was a great way to sort of combine. Richard Miller, who's a famous pedagogue, combined science and, and music. And so I said, oh, wow, I can I see now this kind of merging of both. And so that launched that kind of lifelong passion for vocal pedagogy, voice science, that I could sort of have one hand in that fire, uh, despite uh, sort of the crazy trajectory after that, um, as a singer scientist. <laughs> yeah, because you worked as a scientist as well, didn't you? I did. So again, you know, I'm not blame. You don't blame the family. You just learn from it. They, I love them, <laughs> but they, you know, music was. They didn't know anything else. That that's something you do as a hobby, not as a career. So they were supporting mm-hmm. me in 
they wanted me to go to medical school, but um, I would throw up when I saw blood and cry when people died. So <laughs> I opted that if cells do that in the lab, I'm not as emotional about it. So I did a graduate degree in biochemistry and I worked in a field called telomeres um, with the, which won the Nobel prize in 2009, actually. But my mentor was a, one of the rare female scientists and I adored her. And she allowed me to take lessons and coachings in Manhattan in the middle of the day. So I could work in the lab, leave. And I credit that mentorship for a lot of things, for just mm. allowing me to fuel that, because I do think we're better humans if we can break up our day. And I came mm. back more productive rather than this kind of work, 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 work. I still work long hours, but that freedom was very healthy for me. And she also had our us read papers outside of our field. And so I never became afraid to research other things. So I do feel like all these little, you know, life has these little seeds that are planted mm -hmm. that then sort of accumulate. So I credit her with that lack of fear for reading things that don't Just scare anything. me. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. And then <laughs> Stephen Smith, I started studying with who's, and he, I was a page turner at Rockefeller university and one of his students was singing in the concerts and I started studying with him and then I started winning competitions and switched over to a professional career older at around 30, which is considered old in my field. But you know, mm -hmm. I say you're never too late. I hit puberty late. Oh. I looked like 12 when I was 30. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So there's your story in a nutshell. And then there's part two. <laughs> so that, so were you always classical? Did you always sing classical music? Did you ever dabble in anything else? I, so my youth was definitely like belting the crap out of things. I was a Broadway <laughs> belter okay. um, but it was just again is the the teachers that sort of molded me but now i i love the idea of the voice as a palette so i feel like the training is sort of irrelevant it's that idea of knowing i could sing what i want i'm actually working with the hindustani classical singer and we're sort of talking about these kinds of unified principles that that allow us to sing anything it's just sort of what is our brain conceive of to try to do that. Mm. But definitely classical is my professional genre. That's what I get hired for. And I do a lot of new music. So new music in classical world has you do some crazy things. Like I had to chant Gertrude Stein text on a high C, which is, as we know, with formants, impossible to understand, but I still had to do it. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> anyway, so it does allow more extreme phonations um, in the classical world, but definitely that's that's my home. Yeah. yeah, we always have a love, don't we? It's a certain yeah. genre well, I, that, that's what you go back to. Can you tell? Not tell anyone that I don't love opera. <laughs> I don't love opera. <laughs> I don't oh, no. love it. I don't love that. I love you. I love you. I'm dead. I I love art song. Like I love poetry, and I love sort of that the intimate genre of a song recital because you can almost be schizophrenic. You can jump from one emotion and concept to another. And so mm -hmm. I, if I could just do anything, I would do song recitals because I just love the intimacy. You can talk to the audience. It's sort of like cabaret, but for, you know, I don't know, a different population, but I try to yeah. sneak in, you know? <laughs> I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, later in life, you become, you know, 
Bona Fide yeah. researcher and voice geek. <laughs> yeah, always a voice geek. I started collecting historical. I have some awesome historical pedagogy books from like the 1800s that say crazy oh things word. like, wow. Yeah. Like your tongue has a brain and stuff like that. Sort of <laughs> okay. I love it. Yeah. But then I assume from your, you know, kind of science world, is this where the link into kind of the neuroscience and your interest in that comes from? Or does that come from elsewhere? Ah, that's a good question too. So I'm open about, I have a familial history of depression and manic depression. So that was always in the shadow of my own being and my family's being. And so I didn't, uh, I did some internships with <clears throat> some scientists who studied like the neuroscience of manic depression and all of that back in those days. I mean, this is, we're talking the nineties, the brain wasn't as, as understood as it was now. So when I was in graduate school, it was biochemistry, but I did what's called molecular neuroscience. So I did um, a lot of academic work in in sort of the, you know, neurotransmitters and, and I like the micro in science. So that was my first foray into these kinds of polarity of macro neuroscience of understanding depression and, and families and, and things like that and dealing with my own things. And then the molecular part through, you know, I thought if I can understand the molecular part, then I can cure every myself and everybody else. So that that's how it started. Um, and so then that was always the through line. But how it became more prominent was I was had been a full time professional singer for about five years. And as I said, I was 30. So you know, it was late, but things started coming. So I had uh, you know, contracts with big opera companies internationally. And and then suddenly I got a facial paralysis. It happened overnight. And it's a seventh cranial nerve injury. And that injury was so severe that I was told I'd never sing again. No coach knew what to do with me. And I had to cancel my whole contracts. I didn't sing for two years. I had speech impediments and things like that. So there's nothing like someone saying you're never going to do something again to make Spoon. you want to. <laughs> mm. Yeah, wow. that was exactly it. And so this is where that kind of, you know, those little seeds in life, whether it was Richard Miller understanding the mechanism, but mostly my mentor from science, I was like, I'm going to read about this and see if there's something I could design to figure it out myself. Now it's a rare disorder and, you know, I couldn't find any classical singer, although there was one, Askel Schiotz, who was a leader singer, but didn't leave a protocol for this. But anyway, so that's how I, I started was researching how the brain signals motor tasks basically so that I could re, I knew it was plastic. I knew our brains mm -hmm. were plastic. I knew, there is a way to try to re-signal this mechanism. So that's what, that was the rabbit, beginning of the rabbit hole was to try to re rewire myself so I could sing again with an asymmetrical larynx. I lost a huge part of my range. Couldn't say P to save my life. I can say it now, P, but I don't have anything here. It's just re rewired. So, so that's, that's what happened. I babble by the way, Crazy. I apologize. No, not at all. It's fascinating. Mm, yeah. So. I mean, how much trial and error did you have to go through before you figured out what to do? 
love that you said that because my biggest analogy now for singing is that we're all like axe throwers. Someone said, Heidi, you should say dart throwers because darts a little more refined. But I like the idea of being an axe thrower because it is it's the brain is a predictor and it just needs information to make. We were talking about weather before we logged on. And it's it's all about how much data can I gather to generate an algorithm to generate a prediction that works. And so for me, and I even think there's a lot of examples that are less extreme. I even think of, of you know, what Ken's wife does, you know, Joanne Bozeman, that a lot of women who go through menopause, it's that idea that your brain's sending a signal to something that doesn't exist anymore. And when that happens, whether it's your vocal folds changing because of menopause or, you know, not having, you know, your muscles signal the same way, your brain has to make a new calculation. I say it's like I have a clown hand. Say I, I extend my hand by a foot and then I have to navigate the world. It's it's strange. Like all of a sudden picking up a glass is like, oh, my hand's over here, you know. So <laughs> those are the kinds of things that we can adapt to. It's just tedious. So there was a lot of trial and error and my brain remembers how to say p the old way it's like he it's like an f where it was trying to overcompensate here and then it would just like have air here so i would just sit in front of a camera or i'd have a mirror because they phantom limb patients had a mirror and you could just mm -hmm. say just think here p think it hear it try it think it hear it try it and you make a lot of mistakes like axe throwing. Mm -hmm. So you miss the target, miss the target. But when you miss the target, that's giving your brain information. Mm. And that's why I say as singers, mistakes should not be considered mistakes. We get so judgmental. That's where the other instruments as a model are not good models. Because no. we need mistakes. We need to overshoot, undershoot. We need to say, yeah, I just got information from my brain. And so that's what I do with my students. I'll practice things that are a little off center, sing the note above and then come to the note because then your brain gets information about, you know, coming from a note from contracting rather than elongating. For example, if it's just trying to get the target, trying to deck the target, it's not, you'll, you won't have enough information for those slight things that change when we sing because we're biological. So that's, so how it went from me to pedagogy was that idea. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, fascinating. And I totally agree with you. I, I often tell students, all right, now you've got it right. Now show me it wrong. Yeah. So that they have that kind of, you know, here's here's where the boundaries are and, and it and I'm free to kind of flow between the two and, and play with my voice and, and see what it can do. Play yeah. is key. It's like Goldilocks. Mm. Some things are going to be too hot. Some things are going to be too cold. It'll never really be just right. So we have to accept that experience of it never being the way we expect it to be. I mean, there's some moments, but I would call that more like the flow state rather than the voice being perfect, if that makes right. sense. I think mm -hmm. those are conflated sometimes, that idea of I felt great about that performance you're not feeling great necessarily about the readout because you're not processing that. You're feeling great about the holistic experience, which is different than, you know, perfect. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. 
So uh, at the moment, you seem to be just writing article after article for the Nats Journal. <laughs> yes. How is that going? <laughs> I love, I mean, my whole life I've loved, you know, I call myself a seeker, which I think is the one thing that, you know, my father just passed away. So it's like the thing he gave me is curiosity. And so I think that's been what fuels it. It doesn't pay anything. No. <laughs> but um, but that idea of, I feel like the one thing I can do that's unusual is I can read complex neuroscience papers that people don't read and or don't want to read. And I find it fun. <laughs> and other people are like, <laughs> um, and translate that into something applicable. And I think that's what I feel because the, what, the more I read, the more I realize that there's so much we've been doing. People hang on to history in voice, right? For good reason. I mean, history paves the, you know, gives us the foundation. But what's different in the science culture that's always been hard for me to reconcile is that in science, when there's something new that comes that is makes things better or faster, we don't say, but I have to honor this old method from, you know, mm. because, you know, I, the analogy I make is I used to do DNA sequencing. I know that's boring, but when I started out, it was, it would take a month to get a little strand of DNA information. We had to do radioactivity. We had these huge gels. It was like, if you got a bubble in it, you'd have to throw it away. And Sanger, that was the method. It was called the Sanger method. And then as I went through the lab, that technology improved. And then it became, I can just give my DNA to this guy downstairs and he'd sequence it in a day, you know? But I did. I could have said, but Sanger, you know, is the iconic, <laughs> I need to honor him and do it as he told me from 1952 mm -hmm. because that work, it works, but it's slower than death. And that doesn't mean I am not honoring him by doing it the new way. And so in singing, I feel we have, especially in classical, I'm speaking classically mm -hmm. primarily, there's a lot of tethering to history for good right. reason. But when there's something new that comes, I think of breath in particular, because that's what I'm trying to shift. I haven't taught breath some, I thought since 2015, but I had a student listen to a lecture I gave and she said, Heidi, you taught me in 2011 and you didn't teach breath mechanics. <laughs> I love it. I was like, oh, okay, I got that date wrong. Those kinds of things, we have information now, but right. it's so hard to undo this legacy of this physicalization. And it's helpful for some people. It works for some people. So when something works and it's ingrained, it's hard to switch. That's the, that's the problem. Yeah. But it's great that there is now more, it, you know, more scientific findings, more research. I mean, the amount of research going on in the field of voice at the moment is phenomenal. In comparison it's amazing. To when I first started teaching, there was so little. Right. Uh, and actually, it's the breathing. I, I want you to talk a little bit more about that because I remember maybe 20 odd years ago, or more than that, when I started teaching. And yeah. uh, I remember having this debate with this other singing teacher all about breathing because we come from the school of Seth Riggs, a lot of us. Uh, 
and Seth never talked about, well, not never talked about breathing, no. but he very rarely, it was never a kind of, we're going to spend 10 minutes of the class breathing. Um, right. And, and it was like I was, you know, other teachers were treating me like I must be stupid because that wasn't our priority. Our priority was more about, well, let's let's deal with the source and, and the air might yeah. sort itself out. And and then I read what you've been writing. And I'm like, finally, somebody, <laughs> somebody is backing up what I've been saying all these years, and I'm not mad. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, I think that's going to be the hardest thing to overturn. And not that I need to. We need to overturn it, but I do think slowly people are going to say. First of all, we're terrible multitaskers, right? So if we are only allowed to choose one thing to think about. And it is that you are missing out on a whole realm of things to think about that are more helpful. So that's just first and foremost. You can't mm -hmm. think of this muscle, this muscle, and intention, affect, these other things, or character, these things that are really valuable to why we sing, you know? Um, but then you look at the, the, the mechanism, the analogy I've been giving is a computer printer. If an alien came down from space and, and watched a computer printer, it would say the first thing that happens is the paper loads in the paper, that mechanism, right? And then all this very nuanced thing that the computer cartridge is doing to type out these small letters is made by this cartridge, right? But if you try to go in there and manually move the cartridge to get type, it's not going to work. You can't do that. It's the computer that is calculating everything in advance that then cues the mechanism. And it's the same thing in singing. There's so much literature now that talks about covert listening or audiation and how your muscles even contract when you audiate. There's now what Edward Chang does at UCSF where he can put electrodes on a human brain have them audiate and there's a computer that will speak it with intonation oh, with articulators with phrasing right i mean so these calculations are made in the absence of respiration it's the last thing that's recruited um now what impacts our sensations of i'm running out of breath or are these homeostatic things that can be trained, right? I mean, there's going to be songs and phrases that are harder, but mm -hmm. if you're always coming at it from context where you don't have any space to breathe, so I'm just going to practice that, you know, you're going to create a prediction that's anxious for that phrase. If you practice that phrase in isolation where you're offloading your carbon dioxide, your feelings in, your brain then built in that ease coupled with that phrase. And then you can like training wheels, you know, move it slower and slower. And then I don't know if you've read Greg Nestor's book, Breath, but there's a lot of things on that. Like I was taught don't breathe through your nose. And it's like, that's the worst thing. And that was something with paralysis too. I had um, my nasal muscle doesn't work here. So I had to mouth breathe when I first got facial paralysis for decades. And wow. then I read the literature on nasal breathing and I have to train because this doesn't expand. I have to train one nostril 
every day because oh our nostrils alternate throughout the day. You know, there's mm -hmm. all of this, the, even humming with nitric oxide and efficiency of gas exchange. There's so much, I know I'm throwing science out there, but there is data that we can use that's like, I don't know where some of these, I think the old wives tale was, if you breathe through your nose, you can't get a shape in your vocal tract. Was that right? what it was? I think oh, okay. it was something like that. But we know now that those shit, it's milliseconds. You know, we think everything mm -hmm. is conscious, but it's not. I can, and sing. I don't need to be like, okay, something new. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right? uh, just just the, the number of stories of, you know, I've had yeah. some students of what, you know, they've been told in the past of, you know, make sure you're holding something between your backside when you breathe and, yeah. and, and all these things. You go and mm. did anything help? <laughs> no. Well, what I love is like someone did study the, and again, there are a lot of people who value this. So I feel if it works for you, God bless, you know, and I know there are a lot of people that are really, but I need these muscles and it's resist and that's fine. You can, ob I observe them. I think it's good for students to be an observer, mm -hmm. but the doing versus observing gets conflated too. But someone measured, you know, the muscles and they're all different context. You need more, less, depending on where you are in your day, what your heart rate is, what passage you're singing. If we're just chilling, I don't need to go, <laughs> you know, but so mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things like when you logically think of, every note has a different requirement. It doesn't make sense that it's regulated from these distal muscles. And then you look at the homunculus. Have you ever seen the homunculus in the brain? Yes. Oh, it's this crazy, if you Google homunculus, everybody, it looks like a dude that's just really warped. He has a big head, a big tongue, big hands, big feet in the sensory motor cortex. And the torso is like this. And so real estate in the motor cortex means what needs more neurons for fine motor coordination. The fact that the torso gets nada should also tell you that that is not a place for fine motor coordination mm -hmm. because it has zero real estate in the, in the sensory motor cortex. There are very few neurons for feedback or feed or motor for your accessory muscles of respiration. So then why are we attributing so much motor control to something that doesn't have real estate in the brain for that. Really so that's another thing. I just have mm -hmm. to like pile up little pieces of evidence. It's sort of like, it's like politics and COVID, right? It's like, <laughs> it, it, it's like, a, <laughs> we can believe what we want to believe, but science doesn't lie. Climate change. Sorry, this is not a political podcast. But <laughs> But you can but find can things to art for any argument. And I know that's that's what's happening. But I think the more we we have to be open minded. My favorite thing is when I'm wrong. I've been wrong about so many things. My favorite experiment was something that failed for a year that I was wrong on. And I think we're not I don't know whether it's the culture or the guru ness of some things of this resistance to be wrong. Mm. And um, we have to ego. be, yeah, we have to be willing mm. to be wrong. And I may come on or talk to you guys like a year later and say, you know what? I was wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> ignore me. But even when you discover something's wrong, you're still learning, right? You're, you're learning that, okay, exactly. maybe I need to try something else. Exactly. So. Exactly. So anyway, so it's, it's, things are going to change, but we have to be open to change and open to say, you know, I didn't know about acoustics until Ken. I mean, I knew about the science of it, but I didn't know the application of it. Right. And, you know, um, that was, you know, that's why we need a village of people willing. So, hmm. so thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And everyone's got their own kind of, you know, little yeah. speciality, their own kind of, you know, thing that they're most interested in. Yeah. So, so, so what's coming up then in your series? Because you're you're not done with all of your journal articles for, for journal not, singing, are you? Yeah. So, so the yeah. So the next. What other areas one, are you looking at? Yeah. So the the one that just came out in January was on the the glottal signaling, the valve signaling. Um. So that one, um, which talks a little bit about the evolution too, about how we have a dorsal and a ventral laryngeal motor cortex, like songbirds. I'm a big songbird person because we're mm -hmm. more like them than chimpanzees. The one I just submitted, I think we'll tie everything in a little bit of a bow because it's the, it's on articulator signaling and what the, the, I've talked then about breath, I've talked about valve, you know, the glottal signaling and now the articulator. What it ties together is what the brain does, which is crazy because vocalization is over a hundred muscles we have to coordinate in such a short time window in such an efficient way. It's crazy we could do what we do at all, totally. first of all. <laughs> so that's, you know, the fact that we're sitting here doing this is just what? Um, but just like I talked about the plasticity to relearn how to speak, the brain treats the voice different from any other muscle. It's different than the homunculus because it becomes context dependent. So the brain shifts everything to one small location in the sensory motor cortex because proximity in the brain breeds speed both for sending a signal and feedback. The further you are away from something, it takes longer. Now we're talking milliseconds, but it's sort of like your Wi-Fi or your, you can look at it in terms of what we experience in terms of other electronic, you know, this is electrochemical, but distance makes, makes information go slower. Um, the brain is no different. So for example, your auditory processing, when you sing, your auditory cortex is suppressed a little bit. It's one reason, one of among many, why we don't hear ourselves very well when we sing. That process goes to the dorsal laryngeal motor cortex just for pitch. So your laryngeal motor cortex then becomes an auditory function. Why? Because it wants speed. It wants to get that auditory information back faster so it can then motor fire faster. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when they're close together, then the feedback for auditory can say, oh no, that wasn't high enough. Okay, I can signal this now. So there's one element, the auditory. And it's just for pitch. Why just for pitch? My theory is evolutionarily, it didn't care about the voicing part as much because the pitch would, it's about like, there's the tiger over there. That's my line mm -hmm. for everything. The reason why it's hard to sing high and quiet is because we never had to sing high, except for there's a tiger over there, which has a lot of weight and all that. Um, mm -hmm. 
The second thing is respiratory. Respiratory is coordinated by the laryngeal motor cortices, not by the normal respiratory muscle recruitment. And again, this is gonna be hard for people to grasp that when you vocalize, the system is changed. It's not like normal breathing. No. It's changed so that the, the valve can then get quicker feedback from the respiratory so it can adapt. And there is a whole area. We have pitch, we have voicing, which is the folds coming together, two separate areas. We have something called declination. And this is what was confusing as people talk about maximum flow declination rate. This is different. And it was Ken who at my journal club was like thinking they were the same. And I was like, oh crap, I didn't make that clear enough. So it's different. There's a part in the brain in the laryngeal motor cortex that will, as our as we breathe normally, pressure differentials change, right? So we have low subglottal pressure, high sub, just normally when we're just breathing, pressure gets, that's what helps the inhale, exhale. There's a signal to counter that in the laryngeal motor cortex that recruits the respiratory accordingly to balance so that your subglottal pressure stays even, so that pressure stays even. So that's a whole area that's coupling. So that's the last thing. Is this too geeky? Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's oh. fascinating. Okay. The last <laughs> thing for the, yeah, for the articulators is that it's context dependent. So when you're not phonating, your tongue is your tongue in the homunculus. When you're phonating, your tongue doesn't become your tongue. It becomes context dependent signaling. So when you can all sit here and say, ga, ta, da, your ah is not an ah to your brain. Your ah is where was my tongue before that? And where is it going to be after? And so it calculates based on a, a coupling of location of where it was. So ta, your tongue is more close to your teeth to get the ah, then it has to go back. Ga is the other way around, right? So it's a, your articulators are, are coordinated in a very tight spatial temporal way. There's an order and there's a timing to coordinate it. So that's yeah. that's the next paper. <laughs> Amazing. I'm looking forward to that already. Mm. <laughs> but, you can, but the thing is, is, I know it sounds so scientific, but I try to take it into what's the application, Heidi, right? That's what people want. They don't want the science. They want to know, well, what can I do? I love it. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Heidi. Thank I mean, you. I could carry on and ask you could, yeah. more questions because yeah. I've got more, but we, we better stop yeah. there, otherwise we'd yes. be here all day. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much, and I apologize for babbling. As I said, it's it's. Uh, I don't. don't get this opportunity very often to sort of talk like this, so I'm really grateful because... No. Um, That's why we do this, because yeah. for these opportunities to get to know people like this. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, because I know my writing that, can be a little dry and, and geeky, but I do think it, it comes from a good place. It comes from absolutely. a passion of, I want people to be happy and find easy ways to do this, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. an amazing thing to, amazing place to come from in the yeah. world that we're in these days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. Okay, All right, thank, thank you. you. So that was the lovely Heidi then, and she was, as we said, a delight to chat with. She's one of those people that is just so generous with her time and her thoughts about stuff, and just we could have sat and chatted all morning, eh? Totally. And I had so I had to really hold myself back from asking her lots of things very specific <laughs> to my current master's research. <laughs> <laughs>
I wanted just to pick her brain on that. I thought, no, that, that would be a rather selfish podcast if I only asked her about that sort of thing. But yeah, she really, um, she's generous with her knowledge. And I mean, just simply all of the articles that she's writing for the, uh, the Journal of Singing uh, for Nats. I mean, you don't get paid to do any of that. So that's all mm. voluntary, basically. It's like volunteer work. I mean, I suppose it does motivate you to kind of get all your thoughts together. Um, yeah. But it very much is a, a labour of love to do that kind of a thing and to share your your thoughts and your understanding with the world like that. And the amount of um, time it takes to, you know, write a paper. I mean, I suppose as you do more, as you do more of them, you get used to it, don't you? But still, it's it's, it's not still, like it's a, a lot of time. Minute. No, it's not like writing a blog post where it's just like let's yeah. just do a stream of consciousness of what my brain already knows. Because everything has to be referenced, so you have to find all of the references for all of your thoughts. You can't just say you know something. That's never enough. You have to be able to reference where that idea came from and how that information came together. So, yeah, it, it's a long, arduous process. Um, so, yeah, if, if you get the chance to read one of our articles, go, go do that because they are interesting. Absolutely. And it was nice as well. We mentioned this in Ken's episode, but Heidi's coming to St. Andrews in August 23, wasn't it? She said. I think it was, yeah. They're doing a whole week long conference in, in St. Andrews in Scotland. And so her and Ken, and we think it's Stephen Smith, I can't remember who the third person was, but they're coming along for a week. So that would be really interesting. And we're trying to find excuses to go yeah. over here. I was going to say, we need, to, we need to find a way to kind of go in there and, 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 uh, that yeah hang out with them okay. for a week that sounds fun so uh, yeah who have we got coming up on on our next episode tom well in our next episode we have the lovely dave jungos or jungos coming how do we say Junkos. that i think it's Junkos Junkos. With the silent j yeah i think so okay i'm not as I'm sure he people... won't mind either way he's <laughs> as people have probably realized i'm very good at butchering names so <laughs> you know Every year when we do conference and we have the prize draw and it's like, um, okay, <laughs> apologies in advance, this person. <laughs> oh, dear me. But yes, Dave's Bob coming. Smiths. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bob Smith one, Bob Smith Bob two. Bob Smith one, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, no, Dave is, uh, you know, his speciality is uh, music performance anxiety mm. and how he, he, you know, his a approach to that using... Um, acceptance and commitment training That's act, right. act. Um so yeah tune in for that episode because there are some really useful tips and advice yes, he's and, another one uh, wealth of knowledge you know just yeah absolutely. so much stuff that we could talk about with him we could have been there for days and you know yeah. that will also be an interesting episode because that was like the epiphany of technical difficulties <laughs> that episode <laughs> Epitome, I'm not sure epiphany. It'll all be fine. It'll all be fine. <laughs> yeah, our video editor is really going to have his work cut out for that one. <laughs> but we'll see. But well, you'll have to tune in to see how that turns out. Won't you? <laughs> so, so, Tom, what do people have to do if they want to make sure they don't miss our next episode? Yes. Yeah, so go to wherever you consume your podcast and follow it. No, search for the Vocal Advancement Podcast and then make sure you follow or subscribe. And if you did enjoy our shenanigans, uh, then leave us a little review because that will help us and will help more people to find our shenanigans so that we can spread the word of these wonderful vocal experts further. Absolutely. And if you want to see it all, you mm. can find us on YouTube too. Yeah. 
look at our beautiful faces. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Stick to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're on we're on YouTube and we're on Instagram as well. If you want to follow along and the the shenanigans of IBU. Yeah, absolutely. That's a nice Do word. It. I like that shenanigans. Do it now. <laughs> thank you for listening yes thank you for joining us again it's been a delight to spend this time with you all i know we said we actually might be getting quite good at this (laughs) almost (laughs) nearly (laughs) nearly we're nearly there yeah the vast improvement (laughs) (laughs) well on that note everybody Take care of yourselves, and we'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.